The Geneva Convention, international humanitarian laws, and other treaties clearly state that attacks on healthcare workers and patients are a violation of law. But more and more, in some countries such as Sudan or Syria, these laws are routinely ignored and not enforced by national legislation. At times, local governments and affiliated militias interfere with medical care to further military aims. I'm Dr. Meniza Walji, Editorial Fellow for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Jason Nickerson, Clinical Investigator at the Bruyere Research Institute in Ottawa. In his commentary, Dr. Nickerson says that in many parts of the world, health care is in danger. He argues that more must be done at a global level to ensure the safety of health care workers in conflict. Good morning, Dr. Nickerson. Good morning. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences working in conflict settings? I'm a needs assessment specialist, and I work mostly in the assessment of disrupted health systems. So I work in different kinds of humanitarian emergencies, whether that's in fragile and conflict-affected states or natural disasters or protracted humanitarian emergencies. So I've worked in both the Darfur states of Sudan as well as in Afghanistan quite recently. I also worked in Haiti during the, the cholera epidemic when there was quite a bit of insecurity in the country at the time. So most of what I do is focused on on needs assessments, so collecting data to allow us to make reasonably well-informed decisions about where uh, existing capacities are within the health system, what gaps remain, and, and trying to decide how we should prioritize different humanitarian interventions to address these gaps and, and ultimately strengthen the health system. You've given us some examples about acts of violence against healthcare workers and hospitals, and these have happened in recent times. At the beginning of the month, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, withdrew some of its team and partially suspended some of its programs in the, the northern part of the Central African Republic. And that was because its offices were attacked on April 1st. They were essentially robbed, had some valuables stolen, and described it as a a violent attack. So that required them to evacuate some of their staff to the capital, and as a result, they they had to reduce some services. Now, just prior to that, they also had an MSF vehicle that was attacked while uh, they were returning from a visit to a health facility. This is a really unfortunate kind of common event in a lot of these environments where you have a humanitarian organization that operates on the principles of, of neutrality, of impartiality, and yet they, they still remain victims of these kinds of attacks and, and are still exposed to quite a broad array of, of insecurity. In these settings, there are direct attacks and there are direct threats, but these environments also create this generalized state of insecurity as well, where it's not just the fear of being attacked directly, it's it's all of the systemic kinds of insecurity that people have to face on a day-to-day basis, where public transport doesn't work properly, where, you know, having access to stable supply chains for foods and, and gas for cars and all kinds of things, these become disrupted. And, and that permeates into people's daily lives, into the the programs that need to be delivered, and really into all aspects of of society. The International Committee of the Red Cross published their third study into violent incidents that affect the delivery of healthcare, so part of the Healthcare in Danger project. And that covers a period of January 2012 to December 2014. They actually looked at 11 countries. The countries are purposefully anonymized, but they recorded 2,398 incidents that took place in that two-year period. There's some data that's beginning to emerge, 
and the ICRC has been quite good at collecting this in a reasonably systematic way, as, as much as somebody can over the last couple of years. So you mentioned an incident where an MSF vehicle was attacked. What do we know about the cause and the nature of the violence towards healthcare workers? This is a really, really complex problem. When we talk about attacks against health workers, we have this tendency to, to group them together as though all attacks are homogenous. But in reality, there's a variety of reasons for why somebody may want to disrupt healthcare, And, and some of those are, are deliberate. Um, and sometimes that can be an, an unintentional consequence as well. As a tactic of war, unfortunately, attacking a, a health facility or, or murdering a healthcare worker can be viewed as quite a successful, high-value type of attack. If you eliminate a a hospital, you eliminate a resource for an entire community. Killing a physician uh, or killing another kind of healthcare worker removes a really vital service for the community that those people serve. And so there has been a tendency in the past to view these as strategic targets. Other times, hospitals are unfortunately caught in the middle of violent events. There are all kinds of examples of unexploded uh, ordnance or or bombs that land on the grounds of hospitals and and damage buildings, kill patients, kill health workers, and so on. If your staff have to to come and go to and from the hospital or, or the clinic from their homes, they require some form of safe transportation to get there. If there's no bus system or there's no taxis that, that are running, you know, the, it can become really difficult for people to get to and from work. And also, these are not necessarily environments where people, including doctors, nurses, and, and other health workers, necessarily want to live because they fear for their own safety. So often we see health workers that will flee because they have the means to do so. We're only now beginning to really understand qualitatively as well as quantitatively the extent of these attacks and this violence against health workers. But we really need better data to, to more comprehensively understand the scope as well as the, the nature of these violent events. Um, so not just how often they happen, but really why do they happen and what takes place when somebody is, say, stopped at a checkpoint or when a hospital is entered by um, armed gunmen. Um, and we're only really now beginning to collect that data in a systematic kind of way and, and starting to make sense of how do we actually respond to these events. You mentioned that at times health professionals are targeted strategically. I think that health professionals often do not recognize that by working in a conflict setting, they are sometimes part of the conflict. Can you provide some insight into some of the ethical issues that healthcare workers should think about when working in these settings? Some of the guiding principles of humanitarian assistance are that humanitarian aid should be offered in a neutral and an impartial kind of way. So typically humanitarian agencies, as a point, don't lend legitimacy to, to one warring party or another. So being conscious of our responsibilities when we operate in these environments is really quite paramount to maintaining those kinds of principles and making sure that the assistance that's provided is, is based on need and is not being biased. These are really complicated and, and very sensitive settings to be operating in because you need to be very cognizant of how your actions contribute not only to the the betterment of the patient and, and of the population, but how those actions are going to be perceived by 
um, colleagues, by the community, by um, everyone who's who's actively involved. Certainly, there is that risk of being perceived of being part of the conflict, and this is why many of the major humanitarian aid organizations are very cautious about the affiliations that they make, how they maintain that perception of neutrality and impartiality in, in everything that they do. And ultimately, that is what keeps people safe in a lot of these environments, is that you have this really kind of stringent adherence to these principles of impartial and neutral humanitarian assistance. And that allows you to engage with communities in, in insecure regions and try and establish those guarantees of, of safe passage really by demonstrating that you're providing a service that's of benefit to everyone in the community and that you're not there to make some kind of declaration about the validity of one side's argument or or the other. There are some mechanisms in place to declare hospitals off limits for military activity. It sounds from your experiences and some of the experiences that you've shared with us that have recently been happening, that some of these may not be working. The thing about international law is that unless you are willing to prosecute and and litigate, it it kind of stops there. So if you have a law in place, but the the police or, or the government are either unwilling to enforce that law or perhaps are the ones who are violating that law, it's simply not effective. There have been declarations from the United Nations Security Council that have have recognized attacks against health workers as being obviously quite problematic and the Security Council speaking out against those and proposing various kinds of remedies. There have been resolutions at the World Health Assembly. There's been the Geneva Conventions are in place. There's a variety of customary uh, international law. So there, there are these legal mechanisms that are in place. And and quite truthfully, I, I don't think that we should be focusing our attention on developing new laws or developing new treaties or, or so on. These activities are, are quite clearly illegal, but it's a matter of the, the perpetrators being brought to court and, and actually prosecuted for these crimes. And that's where the system begins to fail. Do you have any advice for physicians interested in working in conflict settings? It's important to recognize that working in these environments is not for everyone. These are are very stressful situations. That's simply not an environment that everyone wants to be in, nor is it an environment that everyone should be in. You have to be prepared to operate under very difficult circumstances and to to behave in a manner that doesn't compromise the neutrality and, and the safety of patients, of the organization that you're working for, and So I think that my advice for anyone who's preparing to potentially embark in a career in these kinds of difficult environments is to be very honest with yourself about what it is that you're willing to offer and whether this is is really for you. You've presented us with quite a large problem when it comes to healthcare delivery in conflict settings. Do you see a solution? We're beginning to develop a network of people around the world who are are very well experienced in working in these environments. And that network is, is starting to emerge with recommendations that are pragmatic, that are based on experience and that have been successful in maintaining a, a level of functionality while balancing the need for sort of countermeasures to, to security threats. So 
I think that the next step in all of this is to build that body of knowledge in a systematic kind of way. Really what we need uh, is some sort of decision aid that allows people who are managing health facilities, who are managing health programs, and who are responsible for ensuring the safe delivery of health care in the field to make reasonably well-informed decisions about what kinds of interventions may have been effective in other environments to mitigate the, the insecurity that they're facing. So there are all kinds of decisions that you may have to make in these kinds of environments that have benefits and, and have risks. If you are working in an isolated outpost somewhere and you can somewhat anticipate that you're, you're going to be further cut off, you know, you, you may need to stockpile fuel, you may need to have cash on hand to, to pay your staff, to purchase supplies or, or whatever. But both of those decisions require a balancing of risks. You, if you don't stockpile fuel, you may run out of fuel. But if you do, that may present as a threat because people may want to to steal it from you. Same with things like cash or, or stockpiling of medicines. I think that going forward, what we are going to need is, is some sort of structured way of making these decisions and helping people to walk through the, the various kinds of essential services that they need to maintain and giving them a sketch of what some of the risks and, and benefits might be of different decisions. The question now is how applicable are interventions from one very specific uh, context to another and what kinds of interventions can easily be replicated in, in other settings. Some of these are fairly simple ones, like placing plastic sheeting on, on windows to absorb shrapnel from, from bomb blasts or, or whatever. And I don't think that we should discount those kinds of interventions. Those kinds of things will, will save many, many lives. But it's more difficult when we get into the sort of underlying drivers of violence. And I think that that's a, a much more difficult problem to really kind of tackle. That was Dr. Jason Nickerson, clinical investigator at the Briere Research Institute in Ottawa. To read his commentary, visit cmaj.ca.